Good evening and welcome everybody to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline coming at you on this Sunday, December 10th, 2023. It's dark outside, which means the final day of the muzzleloader season has wrapped up. And other than some hunting next weekend in the southeast, there's a little special firearms chronic wasting disease hunt down there. Uh, that's the end of any hunting involving gunpowder in Minnesota for this year. Of course, folks can continue to hunt whitetail deer across the state till the end of the month with a bow and arrow or, of course, a crossbow now. But yeah, with sunset today, for the most part, all your uh, firearms-related hunting is done in Minnesota. And as we've talked about the past several weeks, uh, the deer kill is down probably in the neighborhood of 7% from last year. I've got a bunch of great guests here for this week's show. Kicking off in about 10 minutes, we will have two Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Fisheries employees. Kayla Zankel and Grace Lapnow will join us. They're going to spend some time talking with me about the continuing advance of Asian carp up the Mississippi River. We hit another big, unfortunate milestone uh, in the past 10 days. I mentioned this briefly last Sunday, but two Fridays ago, the DNR pulled some sane nets down in the Tremplo area, my old stomping grounds, uh, between Winona and La Crosse, and pulled 323 Asian carp out of the Mississippi River. I believe the bulk of those were silver carp. Silver carp are the jumping invasive carp. You've probably seen videos of them, uh, especially on the Illinois River. And then this past, I believe it was Tuesday, pulled another scene with another like 75. So they've taken more than 400 Asian carp uh, from Minnesota waters of the Mississippi River in the past 10 days. The previous high total was 50. So this is quite a jump, very unfortunate situation. Those two DNR employees are going to explain uh, in more detail what's going on there. Then at the bottom of the hour, our friend Glenn Schmidt. He's the guy who writes the two-page fishing report in Outdoor News every week. He's going to join us. I don't know if anybody knows what's going on out there in terms of fishing, and specifically right now ice fishing more than Glenn Schmidt. So he's going to give us a great ice update. Of course, we had some warm temperatures late this past week that probably didn't help ice building. I don't know that we lost ice. We'll get Schmidt's take on that at the bottom of the hour. So if you want to know what's going on with ice fishing during this early hard water season, stay tuned. We will talk about that. Obviously, the big outdoor story this week in Minnesota was the cougar, the mountain lion in the city of Minneapolis. Truly a crazy story. And when I first saw some of the video of that cow, I saw the video of it crossing uh, the gentleman's driveway in the Lowry Hill neighborhood of Minneapolis. And as it was crossing the driveway, some security lights popped on. And that cat didn't even flinch. And when I saw that, I thought, gosh, wouldn't a wild cat react to lights coming on like that? But I was talking to somebody else, a fellow outdoors writer of mine, who said, you know, if that cat crossed you know, all the way from the Black Hills, I probably saw a lot of cars at night, saw a lot of lights. And so it probably is pretty used to security lights and other lights flashing at it. So, you know, maybe it's not a surprise that it didn't flinch when that light went on. Of course, this cat was then hit by a Hummer on 394, killed instantly, and totaled the Hummer. Uh, it sounds like the gentleman driving the Hummer had some minor injuries. I'm, I'm glad he's okay. And then we found out that this cat had an ear tag in it that was placed by Nebraska Game and Fish. So it was indeed a wild mountain lion from presumably northwestern Nebraska, where they have a wild population of these cats, uh, probably connected to the same population in South Dakota in the Black Hills. 
And it's my understanding that biologists say that these cats typically are young males out looking for new territory. They take off and they cruise. I think it goes to show just how big the home ranges of these cats are because, you know, it's not like there's a mountain lion around every tree in the Black Hills, but each individual cat has a big home range. And so these young males, they got to strike out on their own and go find new places to live. And I'm as shocked as anyone that this cat thought it could make a living in Minneapolis. They figure it was probably running around the Cedar Lake Trail system, probably followed river corridors uh, to get to the Twin Cities. And, you know, there's probably plenty of food for a cat like this between dumb urban deer and a lot of dumb urban turkeys. You know, these turkeys are sitting around here in the metro all smug because they don't get hunted by people. And all of a sudden, a big cat probably knocks a few of them down. The problem for a big wild predator like this is, yeah, there's a lot of cars, and eventually it's it's going to get hit by a car, and that's what happened to this uh, lone, carousing young male cat. It would seem to me there are parts of Minnesota, the, the north, and maybe even the southeast, where a mountain lion could make a legitimate living. There's fewer people, although we had this one that crossed the river into Wisconsin and was killed by a bull hunter in Buffalo County who made a legitimate case that he thought this thing was about to come up the tree after him. Uh, It was thoroughly investigated. These animals are protected in both states, so you can't just randomly kill them because you don't like them. But this guy felt like the cat was threatening him, and after a thorough investigation down there, local authorities agreed. But I think both situations go to show just how hard it is for species like mountain lions to pioneer new areas between cars and and people feeling unsafe. Uh, It's hard for mountain lions to establish a new population. Uh, Again, they have a big home range. They need a lot to eat. They've got fast metabolisms. They've got to eat a lot of deer, turkeys, and other things. So I've been an outdoors writer in Minnesota for more than 30 years, done a lot of mountain lion and cougar sighting stories, and yet I haven't seen any permanently established territories in this neck of the woods yet. And I going to be a long time, I think, before we do. I mean, even wolves definitely seem to be expanding their range south in the forested portion of the state. You don't hear about many wolves getting into farm country or even southeastern Minnesota once in a while, and it's sort of the same thing. They get hit by a car or someone shoots them thinking it's a coyote, and that's uh, pretty much that. It's hard for these species to establish uh, new populations and new areas. Well, that wraps up my opening thoughts for this week's show. Why don't we get in a break? We will talk with a couple DNR staffers when we return about uh, another species working its way north, uh, invasive carp on the Mississippi River. Don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors after this commercial break. Welcome back to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, December 10th. I am Rob Jerislein, Managing Editor of Outdoor News. Uh, hey, I want to jump in now with uh, not one, but two fine DNR staffers, uh, folks with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, who work on invasive fish issues here in our state. And we had a big old headline erupt out of my old stomping grounds. Uh, dedicated listeners know that I grew up about a mile from the river right at Trumplow, so I, I get a little worked up when I see some of these uh, press releases and headlines coming from down there, because that's that's where I became an outdoors person, is in the uh, hills and valleys on both sides of the river and, of course, the islands and channels and sloughs of the Mississippi. And we've got invasive carp working their way up, four species of Asian carp, and uh, the, we had a big old haul taken this past week. So to help talk about that is Grace Lop now. She's the uh, DNR's invasive fish coordinator, as well as Kayla Zonkel, invasive carp field lead. Thank you, both of you, for joining me on the broadcast. 
Why don't we start with you, Kayla? You were in the field when this uh, these fish were taken. Were they taken all in one big net, or were there multiple nets that uh, that pulled these fish out of the water? Yeah, there were actually uh, two different seine halls, commercial seine halls, that we used to get these fish out of the water. They happened to school up in an area that we could get to, and so we went out and got a commercial seine around them, um, and were able to to do two different seine halls, one last week and one this week. The first one ended up having over 300 invasive carp in there, three different species, bighead carp, silver carp, and grass carp. Most of the fish were ended up being silver carp, typical for, for this stage in like an invasion front that we're experiencing. And this other seine hole that we did this week was also mostly silver carp, and we only had 77. So between the two halls, we're talking roughly 400 fish, huh? Yeah, I believe uh, our total number so far is 408. And the only reason I say so far is because our commercial fishermen um, are still hauling out fish from from some of the, the cribs that they're sitting in. So each day as they haul out fish that they bring to market, we just kind of wait and see. And sometimes a grass carp pops up and sometimes a few silvers pop up. And sometimes we have enough people going through the cribbed up fish that we actually do get them all out uh, the same day that they're caught. The commercial fish that they're catching are those. Those tend to be more common carp and you know buffalo fish, or, or are some of these uh, Asian carp? Are they going to any markets? Unfortunately, right now there really isn't a, a good market for them in Minnesota. Based mostly off of the laws, how they currently stand, it makes it very challenging to to have a market in Minnesota. Plus, we don't really have the numbers needed to sustain a market up here yet. Well, that's a good thing. Hopefully, we never get there. (laughs) Um, But most of the fish that are currently going off to market are actually buffalo, big mouth buffalo and small mouth buffalo. I'll try to pitch a question to to Grace, uh, the DNR Invasive Fish Coordinator. How far up are we seeing silver carp and some and and big head carp? Is this kind of the high water mark, or are we seeing more of them in you know Lake Pepin and and even the Saint Croix? So we've captured individual invasive carp up to about Stillwater in the Saint Croix uh, Pool Two in the Mississippi River near Hastings, and uh, in the Minnesota River um, up to Granite Falls. So. Um, we've captured individuals up to those point, uh, but we have caught more invasive carp in recent years in the pools um, below Lock and Dam 5, which acts as kind of a, a barrier to fish movement. Um, so a lot of our recent captures have been in Pool 8, um, but we've also had some in Pool 6 and, and Pool 5A and that kind of area. So I'd say we're seeing a few more below Lock and Dam 5, but we do see individuals all the way up to the St. Croix. And Grace, is there some concern, refresh my memory, with, was there another way kind of through southwest Minnesota that we were worried about some of these species sneaking into Minnesota? Was it the Iowa River? Uh, again, refresh my memory. Sure, yeah. Um, so in, in 2012, uh, DNR received an appropriation for uh, looking at deterrence to invasive carp movement. And there was a study done in southwest Minnesota um, to identify some locations where they could possibly move down some intermittent connections. Um, There were a few electric deterrents and uh, screens and culverts blocked off uh, in that area to prevent invasive carp movement. There's also some studies going on right now in um, South Dakota to identify where there might be 
um, potential sort of a back door into like the Red River kind of mm-hmm. basin um, so that we can block off any potential uh, c- connections there. And we're also going to be working on parts of the Minnesota River Basin to do a watershed breach study there. And um, again, try to seal off any uh, smaller connections that could get carp further into the state. We are chatting with Grace Lopnow and Kayla Zenkel from the Minnesota DNR about uh, invasive carp uh, working their way up, especially the Mississippi River. It sounds like in the past two weeks between a couple halls, we've had over 400 uh, big head, mostly silvers, uh, but other species of invasive carp working their way up the Mississippi River. So, Kayla, it's alarmist when we see a big old pile of fish like this. It feels like they're here. Look out. But the fact that we're getting them and, and you folks are using uh, you're tagging one of these fish and then it's kind of revealing the presence of some of the other fish. Is it somewhat reassuring that perhaps they're schooling up and, and we're getting, I don't want to say a majority, but a lot of them all at once and that just because we're catching 300 in one place doesn't mean that the whole river is full of invasive carp. Can, can we make that kind of uh, assumption yet? I wouldn't necessarily want to jump to that conclusion quite yet, just because there's so many unknowns that we're currently facing. You know, this is really a first for Minnesota. It's a first for some of Wisconsin even. And I'll say this, it gives me confidence that our methods are working. When we see these tagged fish, schooling together. We find, you know, six in an area. We work with Wisconsin DNR. They were out tracking yesterday down in pool eight. They found six in an area that we know we can get nets out into. We've got two crews out today. Wisconsin and Minnesota both have a crew out tracking. Just to find these fish, we're fairly confident that if we can find a larger school of fish on, you know, using traditional side scan technologies from just basic depth finders, we can actually go out there and chances are there's invasive carp in that school. There aren't necessarily as, as many invasive carp or more invasive carp than native fish. I don't want that to become a thing. Um, I still think we have a fairly solid native fish population, but they like schooling together and we're using that to our advantage. What, what, what species are, are schooling together? Buffalo fish? Yeah, so we're getting uh, big mouth buffalo, small mouth buffalo, common carp. There's even some some like red horse species mm-hmm. that when they start schooling together in these larger schools for winter, it's like they draw in invasive carp oh, if they're in the area. Okay. So if we can get out there and we can find these large schools and target these large schools either you know before before we get ice in on the river or even once we get solid ice on the river, we can do under ice commercial seining as well. If we can just zero in on those schools and target those, I think our chances of removal increase drastically. I think the tagging is also, uh, as you mentioned, a really important part of this. We've had most of our productive times have been in the spring to date, but now we have more tagged invasive carp in Minnesota waters than we've ever had previously. Like how many, Grace? Any idea? Well, we were able to tag 17 this year, and there are also... Um, multiple, several dozen actually that moved in during the spring that were tagged by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service further downstream, like pools 14 through 16. You know, it's hard to say how many are they here at any one given time, but there are several dozen in the state at the moment. That's a big advantage to us. We, this is the first time we've really been able to target large groups of invasive carp in the fall, and it's due to that tagging data 
that we have available. And it's good news that we're finding that they might be vulnerable during this time as well to capture. Well, and to Kayla's point, tell me if I'm wrong, they tend, it sounds like these tag fish are schooling together. Right. And they are. And they don't do that during the middle of summer, but they tend to do that during fall and spring. Um, so these colder weather temperatures seem to cause them to aggregate. And it, it, that's to our advantage that we can net a bunch out at one time. I don't get back to that neck of the woods or that uh, part of the river as much as I would like. Like I say, I pretty much grew up down there. What are the locals saying? Are they seeing these fish jumping throughout the summer? Any anecdotal evidence to suggest how many there are down there? We do get reports sometimes from the public of jumping fish, and we have had some uh, reports of invasive carp jumping this year. Um, that's something that is pretty new. We weren't really seeing much in the way of jumping invasive carp previously. That indicates that we are seeing some more this year than we have in past years. We had a extended period of flooding this spring that allowed the dam gates to open to pass those floodwaters, and that allows invasive carp to move upstream into Minnesota as well. And we do believe that these fish moved in from downstream based on the size and age of the fish that we've been capturing and also the tagging data that we have on, on the tagged invasive carp and where they've moved from. So yeah, we have been hearing more reports. Uh, we do encourage the public to report. I'll let Kayla talk a bit about reporting and how folks can report invasive carp sightings and captures. But Kayla, before you get to that, I want to ask the, the big R, any sign that these things are reproducing? We had the lock and dams open this year because of high water. Probably a lot of adult fish moved up. We hope that's what's happening. Is there ev any evidence of them reproducing in Minnesota waters yet? We use uh, several lines of evidence to try and get at that question of whether reproduction is occurring. So we sample for eggs and larvae using larval trawls and light traps. Um, we haven't detected any invasive carp eggs and larvae to date. We also look at the ovaries of the female invasive carp that we catch to see if they've spent their eggs for the year or if they still have eggs. In looking at the fish from this capture, they still have eggs. They're starting to reabsorb them for the winter for some additional energy. That's a good sign that they didn't spawn this spring, that they didn't spend their eggs out. And we also look at the size and age of the fish that we've captured to see if that lines up with known reproductive events downstream. And what we've been seeing is the fish that we've been catching are from um, are the right age to be from those known reproductive events downstream. So all those things together suggest we just have not seen any evidence of invasive carp reproduction in the state to date. It's something we continue to monitor for. They are spring spawners? Shame on me for not knowing that. Carp yes, are spring are. spawners? Yeah, they are spring yeah, spawners. Okay. Kayla, if folks are in the area and they see invasive carp, or if they catch one, what should they do? How can they help here? The best tool we have is having the public out watching the waters for us. We, we can't be everywhere. I wish we could be. That would be awesome. It'd be a nice big blow against these, these fish, but we can't. If the public do see them, though, the best way to, to let us know is to either contact a local DNR office or we actually have an invasive carp phone. Um, the number is 651-587-2781. And it's a cell phone, so people can take and, and send pictures of fish that they've caught to it. If they don't know if it is an invasive carp or not, feel free to send a picture to that phone. Uh, it might be a day or two before we get back out from the field and into the office and, and get a chance to respond. But we're always willing to, to ID fish for people. Um, if you do happen to get a confirmed invasive carp, 
you just let us know. And if you would like to keep it for whatever purpose you'd like, whether it's cooking or or dog treats or fertilizer, does not matter to us. You just got to give us a call, let us know, and we can issue a permit to keep that individual fish. Please do not throw it back in the river. If you're unsure and you happen to be able to have cell service out there while you're you're on the river, you can always look up the DNR website uh, and just search for Minnesota DNR Invasive Carp. It'll be the first website that pops up. And on there, we actually have different documents that you can download before you even get out into uh, your recreation area to be able to identify these things out in the field. That number one more time was 651-587-2781, correct? Correct. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us. The segment went long here, but this has been really valuable information. And I'm trying to look at the glass half full here. Yeah, that's a big old mess of ugly invasive carp, but by golly, they're not swimming in the river anymore. Uh, I'd like to think your tagging efforts and this uh, strategy you folks have is working and, and helping to remove them before they hit critical mass. So thank you for all you're doing. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, good luck to both of you, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch on this issue. Thanks. Thanks for having us. That was Grace Lopnow and Kayla Zenkel, both from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. I want to thank them for joining me on a segment here. Let's get in and break more of the broadcast after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, December 10th. Hey, now the man who uh, writes the Outdoor News Fishing Report every week. He writes a lot of other great content in the paper, too. Mr. Glenn Schmidt, he hails from the, uh, what would you say, the greater St. Cloud area. Glenn, good to see you. Yeah, just outside of St. Cloud. we still got a little farm country yet where I'm out at, so it's not all cement and, and tar. But, yeah, so in the last piece of dirt around that that ever-developing St. Cloud area. Gotcha. Well, hey, uh, ice season's going to get here. I guess it's sort of here. It seems like we've been saying it all year. Well, it's been a weird year, uh, but it holds true. I mean, especially this past week, getting up uh, into record warmth territory during the days. At least the nights are cold, and uh, and we're, we're, we didn't lose any ice this past week, did we? I think we're in one of those situations, Rob, where, like you said, we're not losing any, but we're not making any, right? I mean, it's uh, I don't like this thaw-freeze, thaw-freeze scenario we've been through, especially these these past few days here, so... You know, I'm I'm surprised there's as much ice as there is in certain mm-hmm. parts of the state. I mean, even down in the southern part of Minnesota, there's some guys sneaking on some real small, shallow stuff already, and we just haven't had that long stretch of extended cold ice-making weather. But, uh, you know, where there's ice, guys are, are sneaking out a little bit, and, and like I said, I'm surprised it's uh, going, or as many people going as we have already. It looks like here, you know, late this weekend and, and getting in the next week, we're getting into more of a normal weather pattern. So uh, the days are very short. We don't have very many daylight hours to, to, you know, for the sun to do much damage and the angle of the sun is so low uh, that ice is just, it's got to form now, right? Uh, and, and early last week, uh, even before that warming trend that we had, we had uh, some decent ice fishing going on in the north, right? Yeah, it almost seemed like it happened overnight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was right after Thanksgiving there. uh, We had a Monday night where it got below zero up uh, in the far northern part of Minnesota, single digits down in the central part of the state, but whatever. uh, And, yeah, it seemed like there was a four- or five-day window there. Upper Red Lake is a prime example of that, right? I mean, there's, there's, you know, no less than six, seven inches of ice up there at this point, at least prior to this warm-up. And, again, I don't think they're going to obviously lose any ice. I think the bigger issue right now, we're still going to make ice. You're not going to make that inch and a half a night. You're going to make, you know, a quarter to a half inch mm-hmm. when it's this warm. And, mm-hmm. and um, 
you know, with that being said, I think the bigger concern right now, you know, we're ice covered. We just got to keep the snow off it now and get the yeah. right weather to keep building it. Otherwise, we're going to be in a scenario we were last year where it started out pretty solid. It did. And then we had a couple of big snows, and then everybody got stuck on shore looking at their lakes because right. it was impossible to move around. So, yeah, it would be nice to get a little bit more ice before we get that first snow event because you know it's going to happen at some point. Right. What was the early bite like on Red Lake last week? What were you hearing? For the most part, good. I mean, they weren't. They were getting out about a mile, I guess. Uh, you know, I heard reports that were good in the morning, some midday stuff, and then again in the evening. It just kind of depended where you were. Depth six to nine feet. The ice was good. I, I cannot believe how how good the ice is up there. And and those resorts and outfitters do a pretty good job of mon- monitoring it for folks too. They they not let people run and willy nilly out there. They got road stake telling people where to go. So I got to give them guys a little bit of props. There seems to be an event, you know, every once in a while up there early in the year. And so far they avoided that. Now that might happen this week with this warm weather as it breaks up. But the bite itself, nice fish. I mean. Uh, Quality fish, good numbers for most people. I mean, not everybody catches fish, but when you get that many people on the lake, there's there's going to be some walleyes caught, and it sounded like it has been going pretty good. Now, Schmitty, when the early ice does get here, we get a good solid 8, 10 inches where you are you feel real good about walking and even getting getting out on an ATV. What does early ice mean to you? I mean, are you a walleye guy early season? Yeah, I would say uh, generally, I mean, I, I spend most of my open water season walleye fishing. Um, I do a lot of pan fishing in the winter, but these first, you know, let's say up until about Christmas time, maybe the first of the year in a year like this. You got to understand, there's a lot of these really traditional, really good first walleye spots haven't even been reached yet, just because right. you can't get to them. <laughs> yeah. So we might be talking about Christmas time or just before or thereafter, where where a lot of these traditional first ice walleye spots are even hit. So, yeah, that first, uh, you know, let's say up until about the first of the year, pretty pro walleye heavy duty. You know, you get good runs in the morning and evening. That day bite might extend a little bit longer than it will in the middle of the winter for walleyes. And then I'll transition into panfish more and start chasing those around a little bit. But, yeah, these next few weeks, uh, if you can get at them, it's probably the best walleye fishing of the season on most of your lakes. I mean, we're not talking the Lake of the Woods as the, the upper reds, mm-hmm. the leeches where they're catching walleyes all winter. I'm talking mm-hmm. about on these, you know, your local lakes where your window of opportunity is much greater here in the first few weeks of the season than it is in the middle of winter. And how do you approach, uh, you know, locations? How do you know the, the safety thing? I guess we should talk about that a sure. little bit. Are you you have an ice spot and, and you're you're walking on, you're checking every five ten yards? Uh, give us a recipe to be, you yeah. know, there's no such thing as safe ice, but to yeah, uh, to hear, be cautious, right? Yeah, you hear that all the time. I mean, uh, uh, I always tell people, and what I do, and I've done my whole life is. I, I fish lakes I know. Yeah. I mean, I know where how they freeze. I know where those sketchy spots are, you know, whether it's a spring, some current, you know, it might be a point that stays open a little bit longer most years. I tend to stay on lakes that I know. And uh, usually if there's an issue, if somebody has problems, it's somebody that's just out willy-nilly running around, not unfamiliar with the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you still got to check it as you go. I mean, you don't take somebody's word for it. Uh, it only takes a second to, to, you know, to pound that chisel or sput or whatever you want to call it, depending upon where you're from in the Midwest. But absolutely check it as you go. And, you know, you might have six inches in one spot and go 50 yards this time of year. You hear it all the time. You're down to two inches. So you can't just, just go anywhere. I like fishing these small small shallow lakes and bays you know you're going to have a little bit of ice on them and and uh and go where you know go with somebody if you can too i mean or at least let somebody know where you're at uh when you do go on this early ice but i like to go with a buddy or two and and you know kind of work as a team and and uh and check the ice as you go is obviously the most important thing i've been in a bow with you before too glenn and i know that's a rule you follow in open water too know know the lakes you're fishing know where you're going because there's obstacles out there and don't just don't just go roaring around on a new lake without uh, checking it out first 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, that's when most accidents happen, or people yeah. are unfamiliar with the situation. Not just fishing. I mean, if you're not familiar with your surroundings, right, things go south on you quick. And unfortunately, if you're on ice or in a boat, it can go south quickly. And uh, so, yeah, I like to be a little diligent of what's going on around me and my environment and my surroundings. And, and I think that's probably a good way to approach this early ice uh, season as well. I was sitting next to a young man, a young new ice fisherman, last weekend at a company party, and he showed me some pictures his buddy had taken last weekend. He was out; he'd been out ice fishing that day, and he showed me the hole. And it, I swear, Glenn, it didn't look like more than two inches of ice. And I, I'm a minimum four inch guy, inch, <laughs> inch, inches of ice guy. Where do you stand? You know, again, it's it's situation uh, depends on the situation. You know, I'd rather go on three to four inches of good, solid, clear ice at the front end of the season than eight inches of soft, mushy ice at the back end of the go. season. There no, yeah. uh, am I going to go on a lake I've never been on in three inches of ice? And probably not. But if I got a five hundred acre lake somewhere close that I'm growing up on and am familiar with, I'll go on three inches. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how old this gentleman was, but you know, we all did that stupid stuff when we were younger. <laughs> he was to, younger. He yeah, was younger. <laughs> I used to set tip ups on shore on a couple of our local lakes that I grew up on. Just throw the tip ups out and then sit on shore, and only one of us could go out there and, and set the line when the flag went up. When I got married, my wife had my tip ups at first, time, uh, yeah, you okay. know, because yeah. I quit doing that. Yeah, so. Yeah. You know, they got a little more vinegar to them, man. They'll get out and, and, and push the envelope a little bit. I do talk to guys, and I do see it myself, too, These these the clothing we have now. Right. These float suits, man. Yeah. I always said if i got to wear a life jacket to go ice fishing, I'm not going, right? Yeah. But now they got these float suits yeah. that, I mean, there's a, a little more level of comfortability right. there where you could push the envelope a yeah. little bit more than maybe when we were young bucks out on the ice, yeah. Uh, yeah. sneaking around, sliding around on two to four inches of ice, but... Again, just know the situation. You know, four inches ice you can walk on, but again, it's got to be uniform four inches ice, and that's not always the case when we're we're poking around this time of year. Any new lures you're going to try this uh, ice fishing season, Schmidt? You said uh, everybody's got a Wonder Bread lure. It sure <laughs> seems like it. Uh, you know, that seems to be the the hot ticket the past couple of years. Whether it's a jigging spoon or a tungsten jig or just a lead ice fishing panfish type jig, uh, Wonder Bread seems to be the the go to for a lot of folks now. I always tell people with colors and jigs and lures, man, it's it's confidence. It sounds silly when you talk about fishing, but if you have confidence in something, you're going to outperform, mm-hmm. you know, by using something mm-hmm. that just looks good in the package or that's been, you know, promoted as the the next greatest ice fishing lure, you know, to to come down the the line here, but you know, my golds, my glows, I like that. I like some rattle spoons. Uh, tungsten, obviously, has become yeah. a big part, in, yeah. you know, especially for panfish. Uh, you know, a lot of our crappies in the winter are suspended basin fish. Uh, it allows you to get down there a little bit quicker than the standard lead head. And, and it stands out on the electronics so well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's a good point, too. Uh, you can see it real real clear. Um, but, you know, just um, fish with what you're confident with. There's so many. It's hard to pinpoint them. Everybody's got a tungsten jig now. Everybody's got a, you know, a rattle spoon, that type of thing. But there are some new products out there. I don't think we have enough time to run down that laundry list yeah, of yeah. them. But, yeah, go to, you know, any sporting goods store or sports show or mm-hmm. online, whatever. Glenn, we're out of time, but thanks so much for joining us. I know the fishing report, you know, it kind of there's that transition month there between open water and ice when it's not as big, but it's going to really explode here uh, in, in the next couple of weeks going, going into the holidays, i got to think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's tough to find 35 or 40 different ways to write. There's nobody's fishing at this point. Yeah. You can be as creative as you can. But like I said earlier, I'm surprised there's as much fishing going on as there can, is, and, uh, and I think we're going to keep moving forward here. we just got to get the right weather. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Schmitty, thanks so much for joining us. Great segment, and uh, good luck this hard water season. All right, I appreciate it, Rob. You too. Yep, Glenn Schmidt. He writes the fishing report every week in Outdoor News. With that, let's get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. 
WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830, final segment of this week's broadcast on Sunday, December 10th, 2023. As we speak, the Arrowhead Ice Fishing Show up in Duluth is wrapping up. Also had a brand new ice show over in Wisconsin in Oshkosh this weekend. And I got to think that vendors are sealing up their booths from that inaugural event as we speak also. That should about do it for ice fishing shows for this season. Now we can actually get about the business of dropping a line through the hard water. Next round of consumer shows gets going in you know mid to late winter. We've got Pheasant Fest there in March as well as Northwest Sports Show, Deer Classic, and other regional shows during that time frame. And then those late winter, early spring consumer shows are going to wrap up with the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous, which we've talked about here a little bit, coming to Minnesota for the first time, leaving the Intermountain West for the first time. Going to be at the State Fairgrounds April 18th to 20th. And I just found out this past week it will be on the north side of the fairgrounds, kind of the northeast quadrant uh, right off Snelling Avenue. So that should be a great event. And speaking of backcountry hunters and anglers, you might recall this past summer I had the former CEO and president of that organization, Land Tawney, on the broadcast here with me. Land, after leading the organization for more than a decade, kind of abruptly decided to leave the organization. They immediately embarked on a search for a new CEO, and we found out this past week that they have appointed a new person to that role. His name is Patrick Berry, and he hails from Vermont. He will formally take the reins on January 1st. I guess he most recently served as president and CEO of Fly Fishers International, also previously held the position as vice president of philanthropy for the Vermont Community Foundation. Perhaps most importantly, his experience includes a tenure as the commissioner of the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department. So he basically had the equivalent role in Vermont that DNR Commissioner Sarah Stroman has here. He held that role at Vermont Fishing Game from 2011 to 2014. It's my understanding he will work from home in Vermont. He's not moving to Missoula, Montana, where the organization is based. He's got big shoes to fill. I haven't made it a secret. I was a big fan of Land Tawney. I think a lot of the membership of that organization thinks very highly of Land Tawney. In addition to Land leaving, their VP of Communications, Katie McCaleb, left. I believe also well, their kind of their lead government affairs guy, John Gale, has also left the organization. So definitely some turnover at what has been one of the fastest growing conservation groups in the country. But certainly Patrick Berry's credentials look excellent. And uh, he'll also, as uh, Aaron Haybison, the local regional chapter manager, told me, you know, Mr. Berry perhaps will bring uh, more of an Eastern perspective to the group, uh, which has been you know, highly Western-focused thus far in its tenure. And so that's a good thing, too. Let's uh, you know, bring some an Eastern lens to this continent-wide public lands conservation organization. I will definitely try to get Patrick Berry on this broadcast sometime soon and ask him directly about his views and perspectives on conservation and public lands in Minnesota and beyond. Finally, I see I got a press release from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources reporting that 15 new conservation officers are officially hitting the field. In recent months, they had been training with senior officers. There's 155 conservation officer stations in Minnesota, and even with these 15 new officers heading out, there are still 12 empty stations, but we've got two new CO academies coming up, one next spring and another one in 2025 that the DNR is hopeful will bring the Conservation Officer Corps up to full complement.
With that, I am out of time. I would like to thank all my guests, all the listeners who've joined us for the past hour of WCCO Outdoors. I will be back on this station in seven days. Everybody have a great week ahead. I'm Rob Jerisline, signing off for WCCO Outdoors.